Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. All right, you want to turn with me over to Luke chapter 18, please? This morning we'll be looking at verses 9 through 14. Continuing on in our series in Luke, last week we looked at uh, 18 verses 1 through 8, parable of the persistent widow. I heard uh, Ben Rouse did a fantastic job. I had the privilege of sharing the Word of God over at Living Word Church and just a good report from those guys. It's just good to be back. They are the church. They're kind of like the mother church that helped planted us uh, just, uh, just less than four years ago. And so this week we celebrate week number 201. So just over 200 weeks together as a church. Yes, everyone's excited. I can see that. Um, but yeah, they, they helped planted us. They, they sent people and finances and resources and the things that we needed to get the church off the ground. And so we, we owe a great, uh, great, just a great debt to them of gratitude and, and uh, just thankfulness that they were able to just sow us out in faith believing that just a little group of people would continue to grow and bring the, the gospel of Jesus Christ to northwest Indiana. And so it's good to be back with those guys again. All right, well, um, let me pray. I know Matt prayed, but let me just pray as well and just commit our time in the Word together. So God, we, God, we, just, we think of those, uh, those students this morning who are being uh, persecuted for their faith and looking at uh, labor camps and and torture, and, and, and all those things, God, that, that would seek to cause them to renounce you, Jesus. We pray, God, that they would stand resolute in their conviction, in their passion for you, and in their testimony. God, we pray that no amount of persecution would deter them from seeking, their, seeking to glorify you in the good times and in torture. God, we pray that you would just have mercy upon them, and Lord, allow them to boldly proclaim your gospel to people who are um, hurting and harming them and trying to silence them, God. We pray that your word would go out ever more powerfully, Lord Jesus, that, that we know persecution does not stifle your word, God, but somehow it unleashes it. So God, we pray for just an unleashing of your word in that country. And God, we prayed this morning as well that there would be an unleashing of your word in this church God, in the churches across this area, we pray that your word would go forth with power. We ask that your word would go forth with, with this. It would accomplish the very thing that you have sent it to do. And God, we know that you've promised to do that. So God, we pray, open our eyes and our hearts. Help us to receive your word with faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, this morning we're looking at the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. I really have enjoyed digging into this parable this past week. Research psychologists have found that there are at least three situations where people do not act like themselves. And so the first area of life or the first area that people do not act like themselves are in a lobby of a fancy hotel. So we act like we belong there, right? I, kinda, I call this the, the first-class effect. If you have ever been upgraded to first-class on an airplane by mistake, and you're in first-class and you know that you do not belong there, you don't get there and you're not like, hey, man, I don't belong here. I don't know how I got up here. 
I remember when I was, I, I traveled with someone else, and we, we flew out of the country, and somehow we were upgraded to first class, and we're sitting there. I'm like, well, I don't belong here. And they walk around, the stewardess walks around, they give you these, like, hot towels. And I'm like, am I supposed to go clean something with this? I mean, I thought we were first class. I mean, why don't you give those people in the back? They can clean, you know. And so I'm kind of like, what, like, what are we going to do with these hot towels? These things burn in my hands, you know. Anyways, people were, I don't know, wipe, wiping their faces and stuff. And I guess you're supposed to do so. If you're ever accidentally upgraded, don't clean anything with those towels, okay? Those are for you. So there's the lobby of a fancy hotel. There's also the showroom of an auto dealership, right? You don't walk into an auto dealership showroom and say, I love that car. I'll do anything to get it. How much, is it, how much does it cost? You're not supposed to do that, right? You kind of walk in. It's like, uh, what's that piece of junk over there worth? I mean, I'm, I'm not that I you know, want it or anything. I'm just kind of wondering. And you're not supposed to act like you really want it. And the last place that they found people do not act like themselves is where? Church, right? It's church. And so the psychologists have found that the lobby of a fancy hotel, the showroom of an auto dealership, and church are places where people do not act like themselves. Well, this morning, as we look into this parable, we find a a story in which Jesus begins to really unpack people who are, in some sense, acting like themselves and not acting like themselves. And so let's look at verse 9 of chapter 18 in Luke's Gospel. And here Jesus begins to speak, and Luke writes this. He says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And so from the very beginning of this parable, we're fortunate enough that Luke includes the the people to whom Jesus is speaking to. And so he's speaking to an audience of people who had trusted in themselves for their own righteousness that the good works that they have done would be sufficient enough to bring them into right relationship with God, and also, in turn, they would also look down upon the people around them with contempt. They scornfully looked around them and saw all the people who weren't quite measuring up to what they thought was the righteous standard, and therefore they despised them. So we've got the, we've got the people to whom Jesus is speaking. Luke helpfully gives us the context here. Now let's read this parable which Jesus spoke. And Jesus says this, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And so here we have a Pharisee and a tax collector we're introduced to. And in this, we're given this time of prayer that that both men went to. And it was customary in the temple, in the days of the temple, that the Jewish people would go up during the morning and afternoon sacrifices, or around 9 a.m. and 3 p.m. And the people would gather together to pray as corporately as God's people. And so the first, thing, the first person we meet is a Pharisee. Now, we've, we've talked about the Pharisees over the weeks and the, and the years that we've gone through this book, but the Pharisees were known for righteous living, external righteous living. They had a high set of standards in which they they lived by. And they were highly respected among the people. They weren't looked down upon like in the sense that we do today. They were very highly esteemed amongst the people of God. They had all the things that 
they believe God wanted from people's lives, this holy living, this pious lifestyle. And they really wanted to honor God in the way that they lived, in the way that they worshipped. People respected that. However, we're also introduced to a tax collector, right? And we know that they would bid from the Roman government the right to collect taxes from a certain area of, of where they were. And so they would collect taxes on everything. There was a poll tax, there was inheritance taxes, there was land taxes, there was toll charges, there was taxes for just about everything. Kind of like today, right? There's taxes for everything. But whatever taxes they would raise above and beyond what they had bid from the Roman government, they could then keep for themselves, which then only produced kind of, in a sense, a real scandalous way in which they would, they would take from people more than they should because they knew it all went into their pocket. So it really fostered a system of greed, of um, injustice, of, of, of theft, and so they would do this over and over and over again. Now, you can imagine people's response to the fact that they were getting ripped off by their fellow brothers and tax collectors. And so in early Jewish writings, it got to the point where tax collectors were classified along with murderers and robbers. And so you can imagine, they didn't have any friends the tax collectors weren't hanging out with a bunch of people. They weren't, weren't necessarily going where everyone was going. Right? If there was a, a football game, they weren't all hanging out with everyone else before the football game. Kind of sneak in the back at the last minute. And so you can imagine the tax collectors were to Israel what LeBron James is to Cleveland. All right? Or what Steve Bartman is to the Cubs. Right, Bill Freitag? Where's he at? Right there. You got Bartman on like speed dial, don't you? That's your guy. I knew it. So these two guys, not Bartman, but the tax collector and the Pharisee, went to the temple to pray that day. And Jesus gives us what the substance of the Pharisee's prayer is. Let's look at verse 11. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all, I, all that I get. And so here he is, this Pharisee begins to talk about his prayer. Now, I don't know if we could really consider this a prayer as much as it is, is him boasting about his own self. But here he is, he, he, he begins to open, says God, and he begins to give God thanks for really for God making quite a, quite a good um, servant. And so the substance of his prayer is given much attention and really very little about his really stance before God. And so we see that in this verse that the very things that we saw in verse 9, the claims of righteousness and looking at others with contempt, is the substance of his prayer. And his claims are pretty impressive. So the Jewish people were required to fast one day a year, and that was on the Day of Atonement. And so for this guy to stand up and say, look, I fast twice a week, that was impressive. I mean, he was really going above and beyond what everyone else was doing. Not only that, but the Jewish people were also required to tithe on certain crops. Well, he's saying, look, I tithe on all that I get. 
Even the stuff that I buy in the marketplace, he would tithe on in case the people that he bought it from didn't tithe for themselves. So he's really here going above and beyond. And if this person would walk through the doors of our church, we would all be pretty impressed with this guy. I mean, he had a real high standard of living. I mean, he would come up here and say, guys, look, I only watch rated G movies. Look, I, don't, I only listen to Shine.fm on the radio and Moody. You know, it's just, he's got all these high standards of moral living. Real impressive. He knew God's word. He was a guy who people would really look to. And so you can imagine if this guy were to walk through our doors, we would all, we would all agree that he had a very high standard of moral living. He was, a, he, was, he was a good person in our eyes. But here in his prayer, he really begins to boast about himself. Now let's look at what the prayer of the tax collector is in verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And that's it. Whereas Jesus talks in this parable a lot about the Pharisee's prayer and very little about his stance, here in this section, Jesus talks a lot about this tax collector's posture and very little about his prayer. And he says this about his posture. He said, he stood a far way off. He wasn't with the rest of the people in their prayer. He stood a far way off. He, was, he was, wasn't amongst God's people. He was at a distance. And instead of really taking God's side, he understood this tax collector. He had thrown his lot in with the Roman government. He had chosen to serve their purposes instead of God's. And he understood the implications and the decisions that he's made in his life had an effect. He was unworthy to stand with God's people at the altar. He didn't have clean hands and a pure heart. But it also says this, that he didn't even lift his eyes to heaven. Now, when I do marriage preparation with people, Michelle and I do marriage preparation with people, there's a question that I ask the couple every single week, right? And Liz and Brett, what, what's that question that I ask you guys every single week? What is it? Putting you on the spot. I ask one question every single week, the same question. What's that? How are you doing with purity, right? That's the question I ask. Now, here's the thing about asking the question, how uh, an engaged couple's doing with purity. The little secret is, I don't really care what you have to say. Because, here's why. The girl's eyes tell it all. Right? The guy can look you right in the eyes and say, oh, it was a great week. Purity-wise, it was excellent. And lo and behold, if the girl cannot make eye contact with me, I know that whatever whatever that guy just said is garbage. Right? (laughs) I don't care what he has to say. I know that if the girl cannot look me in the eye and tell me they had a good week, whatever she says, it doesn't matter. If she looks down and she cannot look me in the eye, I know that purity-wise it was not a good week. All right, It's all in the girl's eyes. But here's the thing. There is a certain amount of shame that they are experiencing in that moment that does not allow them to look me in the eye. In the same way with this tax collector, he wasn't even able to, in a sense, look towards heaven kept his eyes down. There was a sense of shame in his heart knowing that what he had done 
the week before or the month before or the years and years and years before was shameful, that everyone else was looking down upon him. And so here he is, a taskler, sensing his own shame, was unable to look up. But Jesus also says this, that he beat his breast. The New Living Translation reads this, he beat his chest in sorrow. And in the original language, this is an ongoing motion. So he's not showing up beating his chest in shame. He is continuously beating his chest in sorrow for what he's done the entire prayer. It's an ongoing action that he's doing. He's beating his chest over and over and over again in sorrow and in shame, standing a far way off. Then he musters up a simple prayer to God. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And here's what he's asking in in the original language. He's asking this. Let your anger be removed. He's simply saying, Lord, let your anger be removed. Let your anger be propitiated. Let your anger be removed from me. And then he goes on to say this. It's not a sinner. The word translated rightly is this, the sinner. He puts himself in a class all by himself. He says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He is unlike all the other people there. He knows that what he has done, the decisions he's made, the greedy choices, the selfishness, the theft, the lying, all those things. He is in a class all to himself. He is the sinner. And he's rightly aware of it. But Jesus in this passage then bottom lines us what it means for what just happened in verse 14. This is what Jesus says to close out this parable. I tell you that this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. So the tax collector went down justified rather than the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I, want, I don't want us to miss this. This would have been shocking to people when they heard this. People would have heard the Pharisee's prayer and agreed with him. They would have thought everything that he just said was true. The Pharisee was not like everybody else. He had a high standard of moral righteousness. He was not like everyone else. He wasn't like the adulterers and the unjust people. He was really following God. And all the people listening to the Pharisee's prayer would have completely and absolutely agreed with everything that he said. But on the other hand, everyone listening to the tax collector's prayer would have also agreed with him. said, yes, you are the sinner. You are the traitor. You're the one who has sold out our country to the Roman government. And we all know that what you're doing, you're getting rich off all of us in our hard work. You've, you've stolen from us, you've taken from us what belongs to us, and you've made yourself rich because of it. And so people would have heard that prayer of the two men and agreed with the Pharisee and said, oh, that tax collector, there's no way this guy is getting off the hook. And so when Jesus turns to everyone and says, guess what? The tax collector went home justified people would have been saying to themselves, what? What are you talking about? What do you mean the tax collector went home? The Pharisee is the one who's been living the righteous life. The Pharisee is the one who's been doing all the stuff that you want him to do. Not this tax collector. This guy missed it. And it's the Pharisee who's got it going on. People would have heard this and been shocked. They would have been sitting there scratching and thinking, what, Jesus, do you really mean that? 
mean, surely, come on. I mean, what, what, what are you saying here? Jesus had just dropped a bombshell on everybody listening to this parable. No one expected the Pharisee to be in the wrong. Everyone knew the tax collector was one in the wrong. I don't want us to miss this. When we read this passage today, when, as we just have read through this passage, if you've read through this passage before, who do we usually side with in this story? Who is it that we identify ourselves with? I mean, you, for most believers, we do not read this story and readily identify with the Pharisees, do we? We read this story and think, look, I would never, I wouldn't pray that way. I mean, the guy that he's praying this, I mean, it's, it's a bit of a joke. I mean, surely we would never stand up and pray in front of a bunch of people saying, I'm so glad I'm not like that guy over there and then that guy over there, and especially not that guy. I'm so glad I'm, I'm better than those people. And look at all that I've done that's been good. And so we read this and think, what a joke. But in our hearts, here's what we're doing. We're praying to God this. God, I'm so glad I'm not like that Pharisee. He is so proud. He is so arrogant. I'm glad that I'm not proud and arrogant like that. Surely I'm humble. Right? I mean, isn't that what we're doing when we identify ourselves with the tax collector and not the Pharisee? We're doing the very thing today that everyone did back then. We're identifying ourselves with the guy who we think is in the right. And Jesus pulls a rug out from everyone listening to the story. Because even today, Jesus is saying to us, look, you're not off the hook. As you read this, you identify yourselves with the tax collector. And in doing so, we are doing the very thing that the people listening to the story were doing back then. Do you guys, do we get that? We just did what the Pharisee did, right? We just did what everyone listening was doing. And the reason it's so hard for us to swallow today as it was back then is because of the scandal of grace. There's a scandal of grace. People listening to this thought, surely the tax collector could not get off that easy. Surely he should have to do something either pay everyone back, either say he's really sorry and renounce all his ways. I mean, surely he should have to do something to make it right with God. It cannot be that easy. There's no way that this guy who's stolen from everybody can just show up, hang out in the back, say he's sorry, then go home justified. Where this other guy who's done all the work, who's sacrificed in his life, who's given so much to God, should go home not justified. It just doesn't make sense. And that's the scandal of grace. That God would somehow find the person who is broken and contrite, but yet his life is riddled with sin, and bring them near to himself. And wash them clean and forgive them. I can imagine today, if if we were to kind of go through this parable today, it would be like if we had a, a missionary come and he's going to speak at the church. As the missionary comes forth, he's ready to share, he prays this. Lord, I thank you that after 40 years of serving on the missions field, we've seen so much success. God, you've given me the opportunity to translate the Bible into three different languages. I've, 
I've had a chance to lead crusades where I've led thousands of people to you. And all this because I turned from working in a greedy law firm all those years ago to fully serve you with all of my life. Thank you, God. And we might think this guy has a very impressive resume. I mean, after the service, we may come, hey, can you pray for me? Can you disciple me? I want to know about all this, you know, this work. And the, I mean, we would be all about this guy. And as he's praying, another guy slips through the back door quietly. On his way home from work, he's a doctor at an abortion clinic. He comes in with blood-stained hands and simply drops to his knee in the back. Quietly, simply, asks God to forgive him of his sins and gets up and walks out and no one ever notices. But yet God forgives his sins. Can it really be like that? Shouldn't he have to do some kind of recompense to make up for what he's done? It's the scandal of grace. This is the scandal of grace. These last two parables, as we learned last week and this week, they have a lot to say about prayer. They speak very much about prayer. And the central focus of this is really is, these are parables on prayer. However, these parables not only talk about prayer, but they tell us a lot about the God to whom we pray to. These prayers, first and foremost, are about God. A God who is just, and a God who is merciful, a God who hears prayers, a God who forgives sins, a God who brings those who are far away near to himself, a God who loves people even in their rebellion. Why do we pray? Because we have a loving Father who is merciful, because we have a loving Father who hears our prayers, because we have a loving Father who can forgive our sins. That even in our rebellion, even in the weeks of our worst and most terrible disobedience to Him, day in and day out, that we could somehow come before Almighty God and receive forgiveness of our sins. Receive forgiveness for all that we've done. How can God do that? Does He just simply sweep our sins under the rug and just turn His back and pretend like they didn't happen? God can forgive sins because he punished Jesus Christ in our place. That's why the gospel of Jesus Christ is such good news. Because he's, he is a God who is just. Who doesn't just somehow wink at sin and rebellion. He, he has punished it first and foremost in Jesus Christ on the cross. And so the cost at which God can forgive the abortion clinic doctor, the tax collector, you and I comes at the cost of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is, G- that is what God has done in order to pay the way. It is scandalous because we don't deserve what we get. We don't deserve forgiveness, and neither did this tax collector. He didn't deserve it. But instead, he's got, he got God's unlimited mercy and grace poured out upon his life. God can forgive the sins of the tax collector the abortion doctor, the self-righteous Pharisee, the gossiping mother who stays at home, the apathetic husband, the rebellious child. He can forgive all those sins because he has paid for them on the cross of Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, God totally and completely confronted sin in all its ugliness 
and all its horribleness, put it upon the body of Jesus Christ who took our punishment and died in our place. And now he can freely forgive us because our sin has been atoned for. Our sin has been paid for by Jesus Christ. No amount of good deeds, no amount of righteous living could somehow make up for that. That is only a gift of God in Jesus Christ. And that is why we are to pray and never lose heart. That is why we are to go to God over and over and over again because Jesus Christ has taken our place and now we have His righteousness clothing us. I want to encourage you, if you are listening to this this morning and you have not trusted in Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins, today can be the day of salvation. That even though you are far from God, even though you are in rebellion against God, He can draw you near by the blood of Jesus Christ. That there is no one too far from God's grace. There is no one too far and too out of bounds for God to save and redeem. There is nobody that is too far from God. God is able to save the worst and most wretched sinner and the person who thinks they are the most righteous person on earth. God can save both. I want to encourage us as we think about this parable. I want us to keep our eyes fixed upon Almighty God. To fix our eyes upon Jesus Christ who is the good Father who can forgive our sins. We're going to close... We're going to close today, this morning, and we're going to distribute the communion elements. But as we do this, I want to just take a moment, because this is very much, this is very much a, a personal prayer. It's a very much a personal um, parable for application in our own lives. But this is also for us to make application as a church, as a body. And what I'd like for us to do this morning in closing is to take some time to pray together as families. Whether that's just one of you turning around and praying with the people around you or there's a whole, a whole family of you to turn around and pray with the other family who's sitting in the pew next to you or behind you. But I want to close this morning giving us an opportunity to pray together as a church. To pray in groups of, of six or seven or eight or how many of that people that is. And begin to go to God who can forgive sins. And as we're praying together, the, the ushers will distribute the elements and then we'll, we'll end by all taking communion together. So can we just take a few minutes this morning to turn to the people behind you or the people in front of you and just pray and go to God together and to seek His face together, to go to this God who offers unlimited mercy. Now I know this may be a little uncomfortable for some people. Don't feel under any pressure to have to pray. Um, we just want this to take an opportunity, though, for us as a family to pray together. So let's just take a few moments to do that now.